On this episode of Health Harm Podcast, I'm talking with Ranjana Bhandari from Arlington, Texas. Ranjana is a mother and economics lecturer, and uh, she bought a house in Arlington with her husband back in 1993. And uh, it's Texas, so it didn't really shock them when the realtor mentioned mineral rights. But hundreds of fracking wells right in their neighborhood on school campuses, street corners, and city blocks, that was really hard for her to believe. This conversation actually happened a few months ago as part of a campaign that we did called Raising Resistance, where we shared stories of intimidation from the industry and how people dealt with it, but also getting uh, sort of gathering some support from within our movement. It's one of the ways that Halt the Harm Network acts as a network, is to sort of call on each other for support sometimes. Um, that campaign was awesome. It was a great success. A lot of people really showed up. They wrote personal notes. Um, they listened to each other. And this conversation that I had with Ranjana was was really great. Her story is really powerful. So I definitely wanted to make sure to share it here on the podcast as well. Also, Ranjana is just inspiring. I mean, she's dealt with so much. I mean, she's seen her entire world transformed, yet she really holds strong to her values. And that really comes through in this interview. So let's just jump right in, and I'll tell you more about the campaign Raising Resistance at the end. All right. Thanks for listening. And this started for us in 2007. We live in a fairly large city, um, close to 400,000 people in a very large metropolitan area. So it's a very urban setting. And um, in about 2006, 2007, we started receiving offers from Chesapeake Energy to drill and use hydraulic fracturing under our neighborhood and under our home. And most of us here owned our mineral rights. So they needed our permission to drill to drill here. So there was a good bit of enthusiasm for it. A lot of it was about money. You know, it was the patriotic thing to do. There was a very large amount of positive campaigning on those, you know, uh, on the basis of patriotism and energy independence. Yeah. And the time was right for that in 2006. 2007. Um, at that time, I was a stay-at-home mother. I had a fairly young kid, and uh, I was concerned. I had always been an environmentalist, and I remembered that I had signed petitions to about climate, about not using fossil fuels, and specifically about not drilling in sensitive habitats to protect other species. So I thought that drilling in such a densely populated area was probably not a, you know, was probably came with problems. So, so I started looking, and there wasn't much information. 
but I did find some references to toxic air emissions even then, 10 years ago, um, especially things like benzene. And it's really toxic, especially for children, to be around those emissions. So, you know, my initial uh, instincts were sort of verified, and I thought that we, sh- you know, that we shouldn't agree to do this. And so we had neighborhood meetings at the time, and we presented an opposing view. We asked people to think about the risks, and uh, it was all very friendly. And eventually, Chesapeake was able to get enough people to sign these leases that they said this was going to proceed. There were holdouts, and there were intense negotiations, I think, at some point between some representatives of the neighborhood and uh, the company to move the well, the drill site, out of our neighborhood. It was going to be right around the corner from us in a area with a river, a park, and trails. And uh, I think that seemed to be a sticking point for some people. Money seemed to be a sticking point for others. For me, basically, I just didn't want it to happen because I thought that it was terribly risky. I didn't think anybody would want to trade their children's health for money. So at one point... We wrote a letter to the drilling company and we asked them, could they space the well more than 1,500 feet from homes? And we got, you know, the classic kiss-off letter back from their director of, I think I believe she was their PR director, the vice president of PR. And um, she said no, and 1,500 feet... I knew was probably not safe, but we felt that that was a reasonable ask. And if they couldn't at least do that, then they really didn't care about what would happen to our neighborhood. And so, you know, I think at least a year went by with negotiations and various things that I wasn't party to. I went to some meetings. I remember putting some information in people's mailboxes. Um, And I think what happened in that time, you know, after they told us that 1,500 was just absurd, there was no way they were going to do it, we were welcome to go, you know, ask somebody else to come drill under those conditions. Eventually, they agreed to move the well way more than 1,500 feet away because that was the only way they could get into the neighborhood because that was the one thing that there were enough holdouts about. So in 2008, when the economy crashed, a group of residents, and I'm not sure how they, were in, how they became in charge of this negotiating process in our neighborhood, they sent us a letter saying, look, we've done our best. We've managed to get this drill site moved away, which was a sticking point for so many of you. 
um, they had, you know, managed to increase the royalty offers. When they first came in, it was $5,000 an acre. Then they upped it to $17,000 an acre. And then um, they eventually said, you know, the economy has crashed. The offer goes back to 5000 And then a bunch of residents you know, sent out a letter saying, look, let's grab it. This is the best thing that's going to happen in this economy. Nobody can pay more. At least we got the drill site moved away. And so at that point, most people said yes. Now, while all of this was going on, we would you know, continuously get letters and phone calls from the landmen. And basically, every time I said no, I was told, you know, we are still going to drill whether you agree or not, you're better off just taking the money because this is going to happen. We are going to drill here. So it was slightly coercive, um, to put it mildly. There was always, you know, this idea that this was going to happen. It was a fait accompli. There was nothing we could do. And so at that point, you know, we decided that we were not going to lease no matter what. We said no to the money, and we said fine. We weren't able to persuade the entire neighborhood to not drill, but we felt that we had the right to say no to drilling under our home and, you know, directly around our home. So that was, you know, that was the one thing we felt we could protect. And so we said no. And I remember the final call uh, at that time from the company representative. She was this very polite, well, I wouldn't say polite, but, you know, this woman with this very posh English, English accent. And when I finally said no to her, she was really sort of flabbergasted, and she said, you do understand we are drilling no matter what. What you're really just saying no to is the money. And I said, yes, I understand. And um, so anyway, this was about late 2008 to early 2009, and most of the neighborhood agreed to the drilling. So, you know, they were going to do it. And this is what happened over and over again. And then somewhere down the line, I'm guessing it was around 2010, we got a letter from the Railroad Commission, which is the regulator in Texas, which said, Chesapeake has asked to drill around your home if you don't lease, they're supposed to leave a little exclusion zone around your home. They've asked for permission to do that, and we're going to grant it to them if you want us, you know, if you have an issue with it. Wow. You have to show up at this date and time in Austin to protest. Um, so, you know. What, what is an exclusion zone? It's about 330 feet. I believe the idea... Away from your home? About, yes. That if the home is not leased or if your land is not leased, they can't come and put a well right at the border because, you know, then they can grab your minerals. Mm -hmm. They have to stay 330 feet away. That's how it's interpreted. That's the rule in Texas. Yeah. And uh, so... You know, I started asking around, and I was told that they had done this hundreds of times. They never lost. There was no point going to Austin. And it seemed like it was upside down. 
we had to go give them a reason to not steal our minerals. It just seemed really bizarre to me. Yeah. I mean, it seemed very surreal to me, but apparently that's how it works. As opposed so to them, I, like, them being able to prove that it's safe. Or yes. anything. <laughs> it sounded or like anything, the, yes. I mean, do if anything. I don't want my minerals drilled, I don't want them drilled. They were mine, right? Right. Um, apparently not. Hmm. So, you know, we thought about it. We were told we would lose. And I guess that was the moment for me. I mean, I'd always been an environmentalist. I always understood for most of my adult life the risk of fossil fuels, the fact that we needed to switch, the environmental risks of drilling. I understood to some extent, not the way I understand them now that I'm surrounded by 400 gas wells. Yeah. So You're surrounded by 400 gas wells now? Yes. And they weren't there in uh, when you first learned about this? No, not in 2007 and not in 1993 when we bought this house. We lived in an area that was zoned residential. There were so many activities that were forbidden in this neighborhood because we were all zoned for single-family homes. They changed our zoning to allow gas drilling. Wow. That's how it was done. And, I mean, there are so many things. I mean, I, 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 you know, I couldn't open a little business here. I still couldn't. You mean because they of the gave, zoning? Because of the zoning. This is a residential neighborhood, and all our neighborhoods were residential in Arlington, and they all have gas wells now. So what, what is Arlington like? It's a, it was a, it's a suburban community. It's midway between Dallas and Fort Worth. Mm-hmm. It's very pleasant, easy to live in. You could commute to jobs in Dallas and Fort Worth or not. Um, it was a good place to live. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any of these air, you know, air pollution issues. And it was zoned to be residential. So that's what we all bought into, not knowing that gas drilling would someday come. In fact, I remember when we signed the papers for our house, we, uh, a realtor explained to us that we were getting the mineral rights under our house, and we all had a good laugh about it and made some jokes about, ha, 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 what does that mean? Mm. And she said, no, no, I want you to know this. We are a very, I remember, I think she said, she was a wonderful woman, she said, we are a very litigious state, you need to know all this. Um, But none of us thought that that meant anything in terms of what it would do to where we lived. So anyway, we, you know, we, we asked around. We were told that this was, resistance was utterly futile. Everybody lost. Drillers always won. And at that point, I think I decided, even so, I would show up to let them know that I was protesting that I was saying no, that if they did this, they were doing I didn't want to be a party to this by not showing up. So we ended up going to Austin. We received many phone calls in between, and there was a whole lot of drama, which only showed us how rigged the game is. Um, but we got phone calls time and time again from Chesapeake, and they basically said, hey, you're not going to get rich. 
you do understand we are going to drill anyway, you do understand you're going to lose. I didn't keep a log of these phone calls, but I remember remember them. And uh, in the end, you know, we did go. We didn't understand the process very well. We went without a lawyer because it was expensive to take a lawyer to Austin. And again, it just seemed wrong to me. Why would I need a lawyer to tell this court? It's a it's a different kind of court. It's a commissioner's court. That these were my minerals. Somebody couldn't march in and drill drill under our house. Mm-hmm. Um, so we went, and we had some help from a group in Fort Worth. And once we got there, we actually saw how it ran. A lot of it was based on mathematics that the company, you know, a lot of calculations that they presented at this hearing to show that if they didn't get to drill under our one-third of an acre, they would lose just an inordinate amount of gas. Uh And they had never looked us up. They didn't know that I was an economist, that my husband was a physicist. So we did understand math and statistics and calculations to some degree. Right. And we didn't understand the proceedings at all, so we didn't know that we would be able to question them. So they presented this map, and we were just looking at it going, no, this is not right, this is not right. And then the hearing examiner, when they were finished, said, hey, do you, it turned to us and said, do you have a question? That's when we first understood that we could actually cross them on what they were saying. So we did. It got pretty interesting. We managed to question all their math, pretty much show that it was not right. Um, And then, you know, um, when things were going really badly for them, the hearing examiner said, oh, let's adjourn for lunch. We didn't have a lawyer. We didn't know that we could probably should possibly at that point. I said, no, no, let's just wrap this up. Uh, We didn't know that that was their last witness. So we went to lunch. They came back, and my son, who was only, I think, eight or nine at the time, was with us. He said, Mom, I heard, heard you know, the hearing examiner, the technical examiner, say this to the person Daddy crossed, that this is what he should have asked and this is what he should have said. And uh, sure enough, when we came back after lunch, had no new witnesses. They brought the same guys back, and they brought a completely new set of numbers. Miraculously, the amount of gas that they were going to lose had now decreased by almost 50%. And uh, they did something really you know, screwy with the math. We could see it. And they absolutely refused to, they, they were better trained this time, they absolutely refused to answer any questions that I asked them about it. And when that was finished, they said, oh, this is over now, uh, let's close. And the hearings examiner said to the court, court recorder at one point, he said, this is now off the record, so the man stops typing, and he told the speak lawyer, I want you to close last, and I want you to close on this argument, not on the argument you made during the hearing. Just in open, you know, in the open room in front of everybody. Everybody was just the Railroad Commission, a whole bunch of people from Chesapeake and our little group. Wow. Um, 
And, you know, he had already asked me if I wanted to say anything in closing, and I had said no, because I felt, you know, I thought, you know, we did, we, we had pretty much, I thought, discredited their mathematics um, quite well. And uh, so the man closed, and I was pretty upset by his closing because he brought in all new arguments, right? I watch crime drama on television, so I know that you can't close on the basis of something you never presented. So I raised my hand and I said, can I say something? And they said, no, proceedings over. Mm. You said you didn't have anything to say in closing. And uh, so that's how it ended. And uh, we never heard from them for at least a year. So we thought they would never rule on our case. We actually got a letter from the company's lawyers saying they were going to drill and pending a ruling, they were going to keep a, a it's called the no perforation zone. They can't, you know, frack and launch their explosives in that 330 feet area if they didn't have a hearing, you know, a verdict in their favor. So they, they, they said, you know, we had this letter that said, we are going to go ahead and frack, but we're going to leave a no perforation zone around your property. Or that's how I understood it. A lot of it was really technical. And so we thought it was a victory of sorts, though we never understood how they could go back and perforate there. You just do it once. Um, how they could do it down the line. We didn't hear from them, so we thought, okay, they were just going to leave it at that because this was a very interesting hearing where somebody had actually challenged all the technical basis for the case they were making to steal everybody's minerals. And they stole a lot. I learned this later. But um, I think sometime in 2011, they actually submitted a ruling, you know, a verdict in favor of Chesapeake, which made me wonder, had Chesapeake already fracked around our house and gotten legal cover from them? We don't know. How does anybody go back one, one mile down to verify at what point they fracked? Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I think that was it, you know, for me, that was very upsetting. You know, we couldn't protect our heir. We couldn't protect our children. Under the law, there was only one thing that we had the right to protect, which was drilling right around our home, that 330-foot exclusion, exclusion zone. That is the law here. And even that was, you know, just it, it's not a law. It's not even a suggestion. <laughs> You know, they just do whatever they please. And that's when I decided I had to go public. I had done this under the radar very quietly, um, very aware of public sentiment around me, which was for this, for the money. Um, and, and, you know, I thought that was fine. That was people's decision to make. That was their choice. Ours was different, but the fact that you know, there was no regard for our rights to at least say not under our home. Mm -hmm. I think that was the pivotal moment for me when the ruling came out. So they basically told you that they were drilling anyway, and if you wanted to protest, go to this hearing. Um, how did you get notified of that? And, and then what did Chesapeake do? You mentioned that they, that they contacted you. You know, what was that like? when we got a letter from the Railroad Commission, it basically said Chesapeake has asked for us to 
let them do this around your house. And if you don't show up at this time and place and date to protest this, we will grant the request. So we filed the paperwork to say we were going to protest it, we were going to show up. So Chesapeake, you know, made us half-hearted offers because apparently I'm told that they they have to go to a hearing and say, look, we tried. We tried to be reasonable. We made them good offers, didn't accept any of them. And that's why we've done this. In fact, the last offer we got 24 hours, I think, before the hearing was for us to become an investor in the drill site that was drilling our neighborhood. And we actually had to give them money. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yes. So those were the kind of offers. There was one phone call where a man said, oh, you're not going to get rich. Royalties in this market, you won't see any. But just sign and say yes, and I'm going to give you enough money. You can go to Walmart and buy a big screen TV. <laughs> so basically, Did he actually say that? Yes, he actually said that. Oh, my goodness. Um, and they are so arrogant. They do no opposition research. They didn't Google us. They had no idea who we were. At one point, they called and they said, do you know what peer-reviewed means? And they proceeded to explain what peer-reviewed meant to us. <laughs> you know, I had an academic background. My husband was a, is a professor. Right. Uh, so they explained to us and they said, you know, there's this, all this peer-reviewed research that shows how safe our work is. <laughs> um, and all kinds of interesting things happened. So the date was, you know, we were told that this was the date and time and place where this hearing would happen. And so we said we would come. We prepared to go. And just sometime close to it, we got a letter saying, well, Chesapeake wants to delay it. So here's a new date. So we looked at the new date. My husband was actually going to a conference in Russia. It was the US-EU, some nuclear physics thing. I forget what it was, but it, it definitely had nuclear physics in the name, right? And it was an international conference. It had, the dates had been chosen. He had said yes almost a year before. So he wrote back and emailed the Railroad Commission and said, I'm sorry, this new date, I have this conflict, I won't be able to come, so could you please book another? So they immediately ripped into him for procedural problems. They said, look, you only sent us a copy. You're supposed to send nine copies if you want an extension to all these people, so we can't even respond to this. So he did that. They said, well, you know, where's the date and time? It was an email. Emails are all date and time stamped. He said, no. They said, no, 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 we can't read this because there's no date and time stamp on it. Um, so all of this is going on, and it occurred to me, Chesapeake had done the exact same thing. They had gotten an extension. Mm -hmm. And we had never received a copy. According to procedures, you can't get an extension if you don't write the same letter at the exact same time to everybody in the, you know who's involved in this proceeding. So clearly, one set of rules for us, no rules for Chesapeake. We understood that too. So, but the point is, you know, all so we sent out this letter to Chesapeake again. You know, followed all their rules, sent out all the copies they asked for, and it clearly said, 
he was going to a conference on nuclear physics. Did they notice? No. They are so arrogant, they don't spend any time. They, they never figured out that he might know something about nuclear sources or about physics or about radioactivity. Did not occur to them because the first person they put on the stand during the hearing was their geologist who went into this long thing about how they use radioactivity to figure out exactly where the shale is, how deep the shale is, and where the gas deposits are. And he went on and on about radiation. It was supposed to be impressive, right? So anyway, he finishes, and you know everybody's supposed to be floored by, oh my God, these guys know what they're doing. They understand all this science, all this technology. And he was their first guy, right? So he finished, and the judge looked at us and said, do you have a question? That's when we realized we could actually cross him. And so my husband later said, well, I thought, yes, yeah, sure, let me ask him a question about the radioactive source. He couldn't answer it. He couldn't answer a single question. And my husband said this were very basic questions about radioactivity. And it's probably all in the, you know, the... the proceedings from that day because there was court recorder and everything was recorded. Sure. In fact, he was shaking by the end of the cross, even though these weren't tough questions. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm just telling you this just to kind of give you a sense of yeah. how smug they are. They never, they didn't want to know. They didn't want to know because they don't need to know. They don't size up the opposition. They don't try to work with you. They don't try to understand your point of view. They just come in, they write, write roughshod over you, and there's, there's the government helping them do it. Hmm. Um, so, anyway, wow. that's kind of our story. Yeah, I thought I was going to do it in five minutes, but I think it took a lot longer. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's an old okay. story, you know. I kind of started remembering bits and pieces of what happened along yeah. the way. Well, and it's, I mean, this is so common what you're saying about the industry just acting like they send representatives or they send people in to these, you know, whether it's a landman making phone calls or, you know, public relations spokespeople, you know, responding to some kind of spill or crisis on the local news or whether it's somebody testifying at a court. It's like, it's, it just seems so indifferent and so out of touch. It's so, it's just a, a standard procedure almost. Pretty much, yes. You know, I think what it did for me, I had this sense that the world worked for the most part fairly and there were rules and there was respect for them. And I think it sort of stripped away that belief mm. that, that things are rigged and we don't even know it. So anyway, so they ruled against us, at which point, you know, I felt that um, we had, all, you know, they had to give us a copy of everything they presented, all the maths, their calculations. And we realized if we'd ever seen that before, we would have been better prepared for this proceeding because we had to do our cross-examination on the fly. In fact, we didn't even know that we'd be able to cross-examine them. Mm. And so I thought, you know, I have a copy of all of this. I need to find a way to let people know that if this happens to you, 
you can come and look at this. You can have a copy of it if you want us to help you prepare your cross on the statistics and on the mathematics part of it and on the radioactivity and all of that. We can help you. I just badly wanted somebody to win this because I had heard that this was happening to many people. And so that's how, that's how the public part of what I then started to do happened. I started talking to people. I eventually put all of it on Facebook in a group that I started so everybody could see, see what I had done. And I met some people. I met Sharon Wilson somewhere. And she sent a Reuters reporter who was covering, who was writing this story. It's called Chesapeake's Land Grab, and I think it came out in 2011. And she, she gave them my number, and they called me, and they interviewed me for that story. And I didn't want to do it publicly. And I said, I'll give you all the material I have, and I did. But don't use my name. Eventually, they convinced me that, would be, that the, they, they would only be able to use what I gave them in the story if they had our name. So, you know, it was a very big step for me, but I decided to go public because I thought the story needed to be written. And I learned so much from them. I discovered that they had done this a few thousand times, and only five times were they, were, was their request rejected in Texas alone. Wow. That they had literally stolen hundreds of millions of dollars of minerals. And then it made sense to me because they spent so much money on this hearing. They brought in so many experts. There were 20 people on their side. They had expensive lawyers. They had experts who weren't really experts but kind of got to charge the expert fee um, you know, to say things that were blatantly not true. Um, but they spent all this money, and I thought, you know, why couldn't you negotiate with the resources you have, with the people who are opposed. And I realized why. Because they were making a lot of money just stealing our minerals. They mm -hmm. didn't want to pay anybody. And in the end, you know, we didn't want money. We were told over and over again when we decided to protest by, the, by lots of people here that, look, you're going to lose your best bet now is to go make a financial settlement, ask them for money. You can probably even get more than they initially offered you. They'd offered us 17,000 an acre, so about a third of that, something like 6,500. And, uh, and one of them almost convinced me that I could maybe do some good. You know, Maybe I could ask for enough money to put solar panels on the house or something, and then maybe I'd be able to live with myself. The thought only lasted 30 seconds, I decided I couldn't live with myself if I made any kind of a deal with them. But I realized they weren't there to make deals. They were there to just get our minerals. And they did this over and over again. The Reuters team that wrote that story, I think they have the numbers in the story, and I remember they told me how, how big the size of this theft was. And it shouldn't be legal. It's not even eminent domain because they don't have to pay you at all. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. so, anyway, so that's, that was kind of the pivoting point for me, I think, where I felt like I had to go public after we lost the case. Before that, I'd just been, you know, quiet about it. Mm -hmm. I had done whatever I'd done very privately. When you did go public about this case and about this theft of 
of minerals and not to minimize that i mean like it's not just the theft of your minerals obviously that's that's what you were arguing but it's also the the health impacts and the fact that there are now hundreds of wells in your neighborhood where there weren't and i mean everything everything has totally changed your entire life has changed what what happened when you went public and started to share your story i did it publicly but i did it in private forums so i started the first i started a closed facebook page where i put all the exhibits from the hearing so people would have access to them if they needed them mm-hmm. and at that point i must have been 2011 or 2012 there was research coming out about the health effects so i felt vindicated because that's really the reason why i didn't want this i didn't want this where we lived where everybody lived where our children played and went to school because we did, I, i i just thought it was terribly wrong to endanger so many people and so the research had started coming out about how bad this was they'd had enough time early studies were coming out so i started another facebook page where i started posting all that information and i through there i got to meet a lot of people both in the us online and overseas who had also started searching for some information on how fracking worked and whether there was anything problematic about it so that must have been i'm guessing 2011 and then the health research started coming out so i felt okay we need to keep that in another place so i started another group another page which has all the health effects all the medical research and the public health studies um And so I kind of started making friends in different parts of the country. People, some of them I've never met, some I have over the years, and in Europe and uh, England and Ireland. Um, and they said, "Well, you know, this is helpful. We didn't know, um, especially in the early years. Then there still wasn't that much information. Now everybody knows. We just, they just pretend to not know. Everybody knows how terrible this is, how toxic it is." So I would say yeah so sometime in those last 4 or 5 years and then I ended up about a year and a half ago almost 2 years ago and we ended up starting a community group in Arlington called Livable Arlington because none of us understood even when we were opposed to it what drilling meant we thought there'd be a few wells here and there but now we have about 58 drill sites in our city which is less than 100 square miles and these drill sites each have multiple wells some of them have 20 wells so Arlington now has 400 gas wells and if the market improves i think the plan is to expand them to 900 in the next 4 or 5 years if prices go up again So we are completely surrounded and all the neighboring cities around us because we live in the middle of this very large metropolitan area 6 million people all the neighboring cities also have drilling so we get emissions from our drill sites we get emissions from all the drill sites around us and our air quality is very poor and nobody's done any kind of any kind of health study to see if there are any health impacts but we now have a very bad air we have in this metropolitan area the highest rate of childhood asthma in the country and 
other things that have not been studied that you know we hear anecdotal reports about. Mm-hmm. So I I felt that it was important to be a more organized voice uh, for residents, for public health, for our children. So I started the group in um, I would say end of 2014. And we're a small community group, and we've been trying to um, do some work on this issue locally with residents and with city government. How did it start? Like, where did you meet, and who did you who did you call when you first started? Okay, so hmm. the way. I think I said to you earlier, the way they allowed this drilling to happen in our neighborhoods, they would change the zoning. Mm. And to change the zoning, they they would typically be a vote at city council to change the zoning so that somebody could be allowed to drill, drill in a residential area that was zoned residential. Um, I didn't even know when that happened for our neighborhood. But eventually I learned that this was happening through some of the people I had met online. So I went to City Hall when they had these city council meetings where they were changing the zoning. And each time a very small group of typically the same people would get up and say, hey, you know, we don't want this. This is toxic and blah, 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 you know, the, the whole thing. And it would always fall on deaf ears. They would change the zoning, they would permit the drill site. This is our city council and our mayor. And so I met some people because I would see them again and again at these hearings. And so eventually I got to know them a little bit and I called them and I said, should we, should we become a more organized opposition? Maybe they'll hear us then. And uh, it was right around the time Denton passed the fracking ban. Denton is about 45 minutes away from us. Mm-hmm. And uh, a large number of the small groups said yes, I think a group would be a good idea, and some said no. And so those of us who thought that a group was a good idea decided to go ahead and start it. And uh, so this was late 2014. It was, would have been right after November, around the time Denton passed the fracking ban. And so then we picked a name and a logo, and we started going, you know, trying to do things in a more organized way. Uh-huh. And then the state of Texas, soon after, passed a bill that said, you know, cities can't regulate gastroling and fracking. This was in response to the Denton ban. How did you feel so about that? You know, after I'd seen what happened to us in Austin, it didn't surprise me. It's just one more. Um, I mean, that's just how things work now. In this industry, with the kind of support they have in in government, they do whatever is necessary to keep the industry going. Um, it felt terrible 
but it was not surprising to me because I don't know I don't know how to put it into words. I don't have the words, but that day we were in Austin and we saw how that hearing went. It it sort of stripped me of a whole bunch of delusions I had about how government worked in this country. So, you know, I was not surprised uh, when they passed that bill. And so when we started the group, we thought, you know, one of the ways to fight this is all gas permitting happens in city governments. If they are more organized opposition, maybe we can get them to not permit any more drill sites and any more wells because we have new information. But that's not a path I think you can follow anymore because of HB 40, which is this bill. But we had one success this past November. They were going to permit drilling under our lake. The lake is our water supply. And it's already pretty heavily drilled. But they were going to let this company, it's called Vantage, which had a very major accident here last year where people had to be evacuated literally within minutes and they had to leave their homes for three days before they could get this well back under control they were going to allow this company to drill under the lake so we decided you know we were going to go speak against it that was the one time they did vote against it it was a 7-1 vote which was pretty good but really that's been our only time, and I think it might have worked better because the company had such a lousy record. They had caused such a terrible disaster here just a few months before that, mm-hmm. and because we managed to get two TV stations there, <laughs> <laughs> is my guess. I could be wrong. So, I'm, anyway. I'm wondering, like, after, after everything that's happened and also the disillusionment that you mentioned, what keeps you motivated to stay involved and to continue to advocate for the health of your community and for the environment? I think that's a good question. I think I can honestly say that I've had my moments of disillusionment uh, lately where it's, um, you wonder sometimes what is the point of repeatedly hitting your head against a wall. But I'll tell you what keeps me going. As a parent, what else can you do? I, I, I think what we've done is so, so terrible. I, I feel like I belong to the generation that had the most, had a very good quality of life, probably the best in our history, and what did we do with it? We just recklessly destroyed what we're going to pass on to our children. And so I think what is really the biggest story here with all this fracking, I'll be fine. I know most people my age will be fine. We've lived out a good life, but our children won't. It's it's the inter... You know, it's the... Intergen- it's what I think of as intergenerational theft. Here we have a bunch of grown-ups stealing from our own 
children, robbing our own children of any quality of life in the future. And it's not in the distant future. It, it's, it's happening. It's already happening. And so then, you know, what choice do you have? Uh, I, as a parent, I have to do something. I wish I could be more effective. I truly wish I could be more effective. And one of, and the thing that really pains me is I think that we haven't built a mass movement. We've built little groups. We've built our factions. We haven't built a mass movement that truly wants to fight for a better world for our children. Forget the better world. I mean, just stopping the worst, the worst harm that we are doing. And it's not something we are doing to ourselves. We'll still be okay, I think. I know we'll still be okay, and I know that I lived in a world with decent air and decent water and decent governance, but it's all gone. It's all gone because of the way we choose to live. And we're just robbing our children, and we don't even realize it. So I guess that's really my only reason. I am discouraged. I am discouraged often these days. Well, thanks for Thanks for being honest about that, because it's certainly, because it's hard. I mean, it's hard to keep doing this work day in and day out when it's just like you said, it feels like banging her head against the wall. <laughs> and then doing it again. <laughs> yeah. It That's seems... what it feels like in Arlington. Wow. Um, um, so, yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know what, what else I could do um, and do better. In terms of organizing a movement, what's like, what are some of the things that you that you would like to see that that you think would be effective for for all of us to be doing together to build a successful movement? Um, okay, so this is going to be disjointed. Maybe I can organize my thoughts better later on. <laughs> I think one of the first things I learned because I really had to do some soul-searching about did I have any power in any of this. And Mm -hmm. I realized the only power I had was as a consumer. This is how the system is designed. Nobody listens to you. You are just a consumer. You're just a person who pays people or who pays these corporations. That's the only thing. So I I understood clean energy, that, that that was... The, be- the only power I had left, really, was um, to change how I used energy and how I lived, basically. Now, I live in the middle of suburbia in Texas, so I don't live, you know, I live in a place where you cannot be ecologically conscious to any degree. So I worked really hard on that. I was one of the first people to get solar panels, rooftop solar panels, as soon as a rebate was available, released panels. I spent a lot of time persuading a lot of people to do the same thing because it was a really good deal. It actually saved you money. It didn't require any investment. It was really affordable. So I did that about three and a half years ago. And I spent a lot of time because I sort of convinced myself not convince myself. I mean, this, this is what I had learned. Your property rights didn't matter. 
the fact that you owned your home didn't matter. Anybody could come do anything under it. That's basically how Texas runs. So that was the first thing I did. And I, I, I did influence a lot of friends into signing up for a rooftop solar system because it was a good deal. Um, I wasn't asking too much of them. In fact, they all save money. They love it. Um, but nothing scales as fast as you need it to. So the next thing I did was I got an electric car, which requires some gymnastics on my part some days because this is a very big metropolitan area. I can only go 65 miles, but I've driven 45,000 miles on it. I have driven 45,000 miles without gas. I have not bought gas in three-plus years. Um, It doesn't scale, though. I'm on the highway, right, every day? Once a month, I see another electric car, and it's very exciting. We all grin at each other, and we wave crazily like crazy people at each other because it's more than about the electric car. It's like, oh, you get it. You know, we get each other. We get our, you know, we understand each other's motivations. We're delighted that somebody else is doing this. But really, all I see are trucks and SUVs most of the time. So I think you're trying to. It's like you're trying to set an example, if it, you know, in a way, if anything. Yes. You know, I thought I was divorcing myself as much as possible from fossil fuels. But I think you're right. That's partly what I was trying to do, to show this can be done. Even when everything is rigged, that is the one choice we have. You can turn off the lights. You can hang your laundry out to dry. You can use an LED. You can just, you know, be a degree cooler in the winter and a couple of degrees warmer in the summer. I live in the land of air conditioning. Um, And I think so, however powerless we are, however little support we have uh, from government, there are small things we can do that do scale. And those are the few choices available to us. And I think changing our consumption is really, really important. And I think, and I'm not saying that individual consumption changes will change the world, but I think that is the one thing that we can still do. And so that was important to me, I think. And you're right. I've kind of made a case for saying you can do it. You don't need money. You actually save money. Um, it's not that prohibitive. So that was important. I think political organizing was important. That's why the group started. That's why I felt. And I was a very intensely private person, and so the steps that I took, um, it was all about let's, let me go find the people who care about the air or who care about the climate, who care about, you know, different bits and pieces of fracking because fracking very complicated, and it touches on everything. It's not a conventional drilling. I mean, you have the air being ruined. You have water wells blowing up, groundwater contamination. The politics and the corruption is just huge. So it covers everything. What I would love, what I want to see, I guess in a sentence, would be a really broad-based environmental movement that puts the future and our children front and center 
and just strives to accomplish whatever it is that we have to do to make sure that our children will have a livable planet and a decent quality of life and that we can pass on to them what we were blessed with and we just trashed. Right on. I would I would get behind that. <laughs> That's you've, great. I think you've got a good platform there. <laughs> yeah, and I mean one of the one of the reasons that we're working on this campaign or I'll backtrack a minute. One one of the reasons that Halt the Harm Network exists is to start to is to really work to provide some resources and or to provide services to different small groups mm-hmm. that um and what I what I personally really love about the network is that it's not trying to it's it's actually not taking leadership and it's not like delivering some kind of big strategy but instead mm-hmm. it's providing services that people can use to coordinate with each other like the crowdfunding platform or the litigation map or even just the directory of people that are involved with um, with the issues with working to prevent fracking or to um, prevent the harms of fracking mm-hmm. and um, yeah do you have any any you mentioned earlier just how it would have made a big difference for you if you had um, if you had seen more examples of these court cases or not, not, I guess not cases, but these hearings mm-hmm. and, um, and that you'd love to be able to share some of your insight. And that's, that's what you've done by creating these pages and sharing all of mm-hmm. your, all of your documentation that you've really been sharing to support other people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Do you have any kind of like specific hopes around how networks could work to support a movement? I think the information sharing, that's important, especially in the early years when nobody knew what fracking was. People just thought it was like a regular gas well. And, you know, especially in Texas, people had lived around them for years. So I think information sharing is so, so important. And then I think finding a network of support because I literally had to find people. I would do things that I had never done before. I read a story about some town nearby where some people had banded together and restricted drilling. I actually found them and cold called them because that was the only way I was going to meet people uh, in opposition. And so I think having the network where you can easily meet people, because it took me years to get to where I am now. Um, it took, I guess I said 2007, yeah, seven, eight years to, because there were no local environmental groups that were working on fracking. When it started, the big greens were actually supporting it because they said it was a way to decarbonize. And they had been very well funded by companies like Chesapeake. So 
I think having that network of support of people who know, it just offers a shorter path. I'm on page one of this story, and it's taken me eight or nine years to get here. I have accomplished nothing because I literally had to, I think, rediscover, rebuild the wheel. Mm-hmm. So I think networks are great that way. They're empowering. Um, they're very helpful. And, you know, there are barriers. Otherwise, I found local barriers. You know, you were either in, in on the inside of a group or you were a complete outsider. So I hope, you know, networks, networks erase that. And that's very helpful in knowledge. I think knowledge is power. None of us knew we were the first case of urban drilling in America, and it's a disaster by any measure. And it first came to Fort Worth. I live five minutes from Fort Worth, and then it moved east to us. And Fort Worth had started experiencing all these problems, but we didn't know. We didn't know anybody there. I certainly didn't. And even though it's five minutes away, I, I had no idea. For me, it's five minutes away because I live on the border between Arlington and Fort Worth. And none of us knew. And there was organized opposition there. There were people doing fantastic work. Some of them actually, in the end, helped us with our hearing. But it it was a very long road finding them. Mm. And so maybe what Halt the Harm is doing is just is, is fantastic because it cuts down on those barriers to knowing mm-hmm. to knowing things and to knowing people, the right people. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And it's really, it really motivates me to, to think about that, the way that a network can bring people together. Um, well, I want to I respect your time and, and, and wrap this up. And um, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and yeah, going so deep and, and taking the time. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Bye-bye. Yeah, bye-bye. So I promised I would share more about Raising Resistance at the end of the show. And I want to say that when you check out this campaign, it's haltheharm.net slash raising resistance. You'll find Ranjana's story. You'll also find stories from a few other people in the Halt the Harm network. Uh, you can check that out. You can actually send them a note. You can send an encouraging note of support. You can even leave a voice message. You can also find links to Ranjana's work. For example, the organization that she helped to start called Livable Arlington. It's all there on her page at haltaharm.net slash raising resistance. And yeah, I definitely want to encourage you to check that out. Uh, I'm going to keep this real short because we've got more episodes coming for you in the future and I'll have plenty of time to talk about uh, Halt the Harm Network. But I'm so glad that you're listening. That's awesome. This podcast continues to get momentum More and more people are listening to it every week, which is really great. I think that this is doing a really good thing for the network and for the larger movement of people that are supporting each other and 
confronting and standing up to the fracking industry. So one more final plug, which is Eco Defense Radio, which is my local radio project here. It's how I sort of got started sitting here in front of a microphone. Um, that's our collaboration. This is a podcast that's sort of coming through both ways. So you can find out the show notes for this episode at ecodefenseradio.org. Thank you. Bye.